Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. Scientists in Silicon Valley hope to be the country's next generation of ranchers with petri dishes as their corrals. Key ingredients include algae, mycelium, and pea protein. Biologists and chemists are brewing up everything from chicken nuggets to sashimi in labs. But can tech companies actually deliver on their promise of more sustainable, healthy foods that kill fewer animals? We'll talk to investigative journalist Larissa Zimberhoff about her new book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. By now, we're all familiar with plant-based burgers, but dozens of Silicon Valley startups are hoping to transform what we eat, designing fake eggs and brewing seafood in petri dishes. Tech-driven food has been lauded as being good for the environment, but what exactly are we eating? Is lab-grown food healthy and sustainable? Joining us is investigative reporter and author of Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. Larissa Zimberhoff, welcome. Good morning. Hey, Leslie. Thanks for having me today. So just kind of set the stage for us here. What, what world of foods are we talking about? What are they brewing up and designing in Silicon Valley? Oh, good one. Um, so much is coming our way, and some is already here. In Singapore, you can order chicken nuggets that have a portion of cultured meat and uh, plant protein in them. You can even have them for home delivery. There are people uh, turning algae into the color blue so that you know we could have a bright blue M&Ms one day with, with spirulina. Um, there are mycoproteins, so proteins coming from fungi that are being brewed in big silver vats, kind of like you might see at a brewery that might make your chicken in the future. And we've got uh, vertical farms making greens that are delicate, like kale that's delicate and you know tender and easy to work with. There's just a world of new foods that look nothing like what we know and potentially don't have the same kind of um, uh, macronutrients or micronutrients or um, uh, phytonutrients or antioxidants. It's all different. So so why? why? Why are they doing this? We have food, seems to work okay, seems to be healthy. Why are we designing, you know, brightly co- colored foods and, and growing foods in labs? 
You're right. We do have food and we have a farming system that, you know, while it uh, has its flaws, uh, it, it works and it gets us food. And even though the pandemic had a few hiccups in supply chain, we got our food and we ate uh, even when we stayed home. But the why is that is very mission based. Most of these companies are very focused on saving our climate from the crisis it's it's in it's it's becoming a, a very loud uh choir that's you know saying that we need to make change in what we eat to save the planet and it's that planetary crisis that is on top of on top of everybody's of every startup's kind of goal and it's you know climate crisis it's the blight of industrial animal animal agriculture it's human disease as evidenced by the pandemic there are all these reasons where they say that if we lessen our our need of animal meat that we can improve the planet's health and improve you know um the climate the, the, and you know where we're going in the future and do we have some data to show that these promises are, are valid? Are these products, can, if we're growing things in labs and if we're using algae to color our M&Ms, are we going to be saving the environment? Do we know if it's working? Well, we know that lessening animal industrial animal agriculture is going to improve the climate. We know that you know, the data shows that, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions that come from industrial agriculture from the transportation that, that it relies on are both very detrimental to the planet. However, most of these, no, almost none of these foods have scaled. So, you know, we, we have guesses, right. That um, if we shift to plant-based diets, if we eat more plants over versus less animal meat, that we will, we will make improvements to the climate. Um, most of the experts will point to that, but none of these foods have scaled. So we really can't say, I mean, the closest companies that have scaled are like impossible foods and beyond meat with their plant-based burgers. And they do strive to do things, something really complicated called a, a life cycle carbon analysis to say how much um, impact it, their, their foods have on the planet. But these are all sort of nebulous and you will get different numbers from different people. Um, I think it is pretty clear that converting our diets to be more plant-based versus animal-based is good for the planet, but it is still, I would say, um, a mixed bag of, of experts saying, saying yes or no. Let's talk about a few of your favorite foods that you've tried on your journey over the last few years. You, you named several different options, plant-based bacon, so fungi burgers. So, so give me a couple of your favorites and, and how they stack up against kind of our more traditional options. Yeah, definitely. The I I am my first chapter is on algae and I'm such a like I I really want it to succeed. People have been trying to make algae work for for decades. NASA has famously tried to, you know, send it into space and feed astronauts and gr growing it to to any kind of scale, but it's such a tiny little organism that is a little touchy to grow and you know, anytime, anytime we sort of put algae into something different than, you know, say, uh, seaweed or, um, you know, our sushi, um, it, it becomes difficult, but I've had some recently, I had some seaweed bacon. So there's a startup in Berkeley called Trophic that is, um, extracting the protein from seaweed from macroalgae. So red seaweed, which is sort of the kelps and the seaweeds and which is different from microalgae, which are the tinier spirulina and chlorella, but they're extracting protein from it and they're making bacon. And it's, 
it's tasty. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. You're a fan you know? of, <laughs> of this new algae based bacon, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a startup, another startup in Berkeley. Berkeley seems to be a hotbed of, of activity. Surprise, I guess surprise. I, should, I, guess I, I guess I should change my title to Inside Berkeley's. <laughs> it would right? be so funny. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, they're making it from koji. Now, koji was fam- has long been used to uh, ferment uh, soy and um, miso, but now it's being grown inside vats. Um, again, it's this fermentation narrative that is threaded throughout my book that so many people are, are tapping to grow these new foods. So um, they're, they're growing koji in silver tanks and then they're forming it into a slab and then they're smoking it, adding flavors like they have a black pepper koji bacon and I tasted it and it's it's good. You know, I'm, I'm a low bacon bar. Uh, I don't <laughs> obviously. <laughs> no, maybe not. I shouldn't, I haven't tried it. So I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm more than happy to, to like believe that, um, a plant-based bacon can be, can, can hit those notes, savory and umami and smoky notes enough that I'll be happy. I think usually the thing all many of these foods are missing is fat. So it's that animal fat that is still missing that hasn't fully been um, tackled yet. And that's satiation, right? I mean, the fat is what gives us that sense of, yeah, now I'm, now I'm good. Yes, absolutely. And fat helps deliver flavor to your taste buds. And yeah, and it keeps you full longer. So there, I don't know if there's been any research into do plant-based diets keep you satiated longer, but I think that would be a great one for someone to do. To be determined on that front. Let's just get, again, kind of the lay of the land here. So we're talking about fermentation. That's happening in plant-based bacon, apparently. But we're also talking about you know cell-cultured meat. So what is that, and how, how does that work? How do you grow meat in a lab? Yeah, so... Uh, cultured meat, and there's almost, I would say there's about 100 companies really t- trying to make meat and seafood around the world. So it's very global in nature right now. And the it starts with taking cells from the animal or the fish. And um, the animal doesn't have to die for that to happen. And it only they say, the founders tell me that it only has to happen once, that once they have the cells, they are kind of origin cells, that they can use those cells again and again. So there's like a startup in the East Bay that's, again, the East Bay, that is, you know has name, has the name of their bull. His name is Future, right? And you can, right, you can almost like know the animal that your cells came from that you're then going to eat. But so they take the cells from the animal and then they They've, they determine which ones may be the best to work with. And then they have to feed the cells. So just like you have to feed me or you have to feed a cow, right, to, to eventually kill the cow and, and serve it up, right, you feed these cells nutrients to help them grow. And this is a really complicated area of, of science where, you know, I mean, this has been happening in medical, the medical world of like tissue engineering or like creating like, you know, artificial party parts, you know. Right, organs. Um, Exactly. Organs. And so like what's, what's happening though, is like, is like doctors, instead of wanting to go into the medical field are going into food uh, and they're helping grow food for us to eat instead of, you know, saving people in the hospital. Um, So these cells are given nutrients to grow. They need things just like you need me. They need carbohydrates. They need proteins. They need amino acids. They also need insulin. Now I have type one diabetes, so I take insulin. Um, these things are right now pretty expensive. It's a supply chain that's built for phar- pharmaceuticals and it's not built for food. Um, so they grow the cells and eventually they have kind of a, 
a slurry. You know, maybe it looks like a pink applesauce, right? Mm. Remember the pink pink slime of old. I know pink I'm not making slime. It sound. <laughs> Sounds great, super tasty. I'm not, make, I'm not making it sound very appetizing, but there are sort of two routes, right? They can make like kind of a mush, right? That it eventually becomes like a chicken nugget, right? It's or sashimi. With- <clears throat> Well, so sashimi would be, so there's also this sort of a whole cut, which is more of a holy grail for meat, for cultured meat companies, which is to, that with that, they need structure. So they need a scaffolding to grow the cells on. And that scaffolding might allow it to make a steak or it might allow it to make um, a chicken bone or chicken wing. Um, so that's, a, that takes more, that's more complicated. It's a, it's a bigger step, right? The chicken nugget is easier than the steak. And uh, once- Slime is easier, it sounds like. (laughs) Oh, yes, for sure. So it's a really complicated process. Again, there are these silver tanks like that everyone's using. They're called bioreactors. Another company calls theirs uh, cultivators. They all have different names. They're all proprietary. They're all sort of under undercover, right? We can see the outside, but we don't know what's inside. And so that's actually one of the reasons I wrote the book, which was, you know, what are the, these these new foods are so overly complex um and i think it's so, some in some ways it's beyond what people are willing to comprehend or are interested in in understanding and so you know i wrote the book i set out to learn as much as i could to taste as many things as i could and ask as many questions as possible to help me understand whether whether these foods were also considering our health um you know back to my having type 1 diabetes i really look at food uh, much closer than most people much more rigorously about their, you know, their macronutrients, what's what's happening on the inside. We're talking about the future of food with author and journalist Larissa Zimberhoff about her new book, Technically Food. Have you included any plant-based options or cultured meats into your diet, into your kids' diets? What do you think about that? Would you do it? How do you feel about getting food from a lab or from big tech? I want to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or the old-fashioned way, email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. We're talking about the future of food with author and journalist Larissa Zimberhoff and her new book, Technically Food. Larissa, I want to talk about how healthy these things are, or are they healthy? I mean, if we culture meat in these big silver vats in labs, or if we eat plant-based bacon, do we know if this stuff is as good as the old-fashioned stuff? We don't. Uh, and that, it's a question I asked. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Uh, you know, what's happening in today's new food world, new food landscape is these foods are being pulled apart, right? So they're being pulled apart like a cog in a machine and um, maybe only the muscle from an animal or a single protein from an egg. And so it's it's a wholly new thing that is being uh, 
you know, considered as, as future, future diets, future American diets. And so the example of the, the humble pea, right. The, the yellow pea, which is, uh, you know, packed with fiber and it's so good for us, you know, and our moms told us to eat the green pea. And, but once you split it apart, right, you take the protein and you, you use it for the milk and you take the fiber and you use it for something else, maybe animal feed. And you use the starch in, in China when they fractionate peas, right, to remove the three, the different categories of um, ingredients, they take the starch and they make noodles out of them. And so, I'm no longer getting what that pea has uh, for me. I, it I'm seems not like that. the opposite of whole foods, right? We've been told or we've been kind of um, marketed to, I don't I mean, not marketed to kind of the opposite, like don't eat processed foods, eat whole foods. This seems kind of counter to that whole idea. Here we are pulling it apart, designing it in a lab in, in different portions, proteins here, fats here. So it, yeah, what do we know about how the, how the body deals with that? Well, I, I look at my, my body and my, my blood sugar constantly. And I look at my, I look at blab, blood work, I lab, my lab work for my, my endocrinologist, you know, at least every six months. And so I can see what happens when I don't eat whole foods that are kind of simple in origin. Uh, when I, when I eat whole foods, when I eat fruits and vegetables and the basics, you know, I don't have to regulate my blood sugar. I don't have to monitor it to, at an extreme level. But anytime I veer off of that, I I have complications. I my blood sugar skyrockets. It, there's like high glycemic foods or you know um, problems with like processing, and I have to like you know I have you know maybe four hours of things I have to deal with. And so anytime I'm 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 eating more ultra processed or highly processed foods, things that have, you know, lots of, lots of ingredients, uh, and are, you know, kind of highly palatable and, you know, delicious, right. I have to deal with it. And because I, I have that lens because I have type one di diabetes, I understand food in a different way and I know it's impact and, you know, a healthy diet for me is a healthy diet for everyone. Michael tweets, the only processed foods I'm going to eat are condiments. Won't, he won't be eating any <laughs> plant-based meats uh, because of, they seem highly processed, of, mostly. But having a shellfish allergy, he's curious. The idea of fake seafood is appealing to him. So how would this be different from today's sashimi? And, and, and is it different? How would plant-based seafood be, yeah. be different? Yeah. 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 You know, I actually tried a, a new version of plant-based tuna. It, it looked like salmon and it's, it's, um, made from almost nothing that was real. It looked just like fish. It was incredible. I did a video on TikTok and like everyone went crazy for it because it just looks so real. But I looked at the ingredients and it was just starches and binders. You know, I actually learned about a new ingredient when I got that package. There's something called, uh, tree hollows, which is a binder and a sweetener. And it was like, it tasted it was squishy and it looked like fish. And I, I think in a roll with rice and seaweed and vegetables, you know, maybe it's not that bad, maybe. Right? <laughs> you know, it gives you, it gives your eyes what it needs, right? Food is both, is also yeah. visual and, but it's not returning nutrients. So if you have a varied diet, then, you know, no problem. Like have that seafood roll, have that California roll that has the fake sushi in it that also has, you know, maybe an avocado and a carrot and a cucumber. I mean, like, thankfully the startup, the technology companies aren't actually tackling vegetables yet. So we can, we at least have those as sort of a, safe space. We can still keep eating our carrots. Is there an example of a food 
in this space that does kind of strike the balance between being both healthy and sustainable? Yeah, I think the, the, my first two chapters, algae and then fungi, are the are the categories that I am most excited about. Algae because it's green, which I love. Things that are green and fungi is you know it has fiber, it has protein. We actually it's been used in corn, Q U O R N, since like the late '60s, and it's you know in, they have corn chicken nuggets and things like that. And so fungi is this like very close to the earth, very. Um, unchanged. It doesn't have to be fractionated. It doesn't have to be grown in one country and shipped to another country and shipped back. Corn, uh, fungi can be grown in, again, the silver tanks, the famous silver tanks, and then formed into something and then made into foods. And I've tried several different uh, products that I think I would put into my diet. You know, if I had, could have a, a piece of, you know, quote unquote chicken that was made from fungi that had fiber and protein and had like four other ingredients, I'd be thrilled. And this, like, I, th I don't think clean labels going anywhere. And I think that there's a complexity with new foods that ha kind of um, obfuscates the, the, the clean label. But I think fungi is an algae again, are, are things that I'm very excited about because they're simpler and they need less uh, manhandling. We want to hear from you. Do you want to eat algae and fungi or have you included some of these plant-based options in your diet? And how do you feel about getting your food from big labs or big tech? Uh, give us a call at 1-866-733-6786. That's 1-866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. John writes... Badly raised beef or other animal proteins are definitely bad in many ways, but there is substantial data showing that well-raised beef is regenerative to the environment and good for health. It's not the cow, it's the how. What do you think about that, Larissa? <laughs> That's great. Uh, you know, I, I am a, I'm a big proponent of regenerative organic agriculture, and I think it is good for the land, it is good for the climate, it is good for the people. My concern is that when new foods sort of uh, propagate our markets, that we have sort of an unequal uh, system, which is what we have now, which is that the good stuff, right, the regenerative, regenerative organic becomes so expensive that it can only be purchased by a, a certain small set of people, right, who already have access. And the equity question kind of becomes bigger as cheap meat is replaced by culture meat, right? And we still have sort of the high-end gourmet meats, you know, who gets access to those? And if, if the government kind of could get behind regenerative organic agriculture and made it a bigger thing, right? And there were subsidies for those types of uh, farming, then we could have a better access. But if we were just to place this on the you know, on the, the current food system that we have, we're going to have all those equity questions and problems. Are these companies trying to target more than, say, niche markets in places like Berkeley? I mean, are the, is the goal to get these cell-cultured cell burgers, say, to Africa or to developing countries? Definitely. They all have global sites. You know, we can just watch, you know, uh, Beyond Meat just launched chicken chicken in, at KFC in China. Beyond uh, Impossible is, you know, everyone's got their eyes on China. Everyone wants to be global. 
what I'm excited about is that there are actually culture meat companies and plant-based meat companies that are popping up in those countries. So there, I have seen African companies making meat for their market, right? And that's, that is what I want to see. I do want to see plant-based products that are made in market, right? For that sector, like that makes sense. But if, if these companies have investments from Silicon Valley and Wall Street, their goal is to make as much money as possible, right? And that that means global in nature. That means, you know, domination. That means, you know, everyone wants to scale. They really want to serve a global audience because they want to make as big an impact as possible. Their mission is to change the world. And is it likely? Do you think that they're going to be able to scale? Do we have any indications that they can? I think culture meat is still a very big question mark. I think my last chapter has, uh, I talked to experts asking what's on our dinner plate in 20 years. And many, many say, oh, we will have cultured meat, but not, not quite to any kind of extreme levels, not everywhere. And so I think, I think cultured lab grown is a, is a, is a question mark still. It hasn't been approved by the FDA and the USDA. It's a, a collaborative effort that will be happening for that. And it, although it seems like possible it could happen at the end of the year or next year that's what the culture meat companies hope uh but i think it's going to take a long time for that to scale i think it's going to be in very small amounts i think there's going to be a hybrid i think our supermarkets will start to be filled with hybrid products that might have 10 percent cultured cells or uh, restaurants would would serve it up first just like in singapore a restaurant was serving up this chicken nugget first so uh it's 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 TBD, I think, for cultured meat. I think for everything else, I think, I mean, again, algae is still <laughs> that tough one that no one can figure out how to do right. Uh, but I think I can see fungi hitting hitting kind of big scale pretty easily. And I think there's a lot of excitement behind microproteins. Well, May writes, I was eager to try Beyond Burgers, but was shocked by the amount of plastic packaging needed for each individually wrapped burger. It seems to me that nothing can benefit the environment if it comes wrapped that way. Let's go to... Uh, Dana in Palo Alto and hear what she has to say. Go ahead, Dana. Dana. Hi. Yeah, we've been um, using some of these products for many years. In fact, I even bought into the Morningstar Farms Company for a while, but was bought out uh, by the brother uh, when he, the original owner died, and they took back all the stock. But anyway, so we uh, have been using their Morningstar Farm bacon and um, other products like sausage and Burgers, and also actually, we buy a lot of things um, at Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's has a a lot of uh, like sausage like products uh, that are uh, vegetable based, and um, but we have to be very careful because we have uh, allergies to gluten in our family. So I have to look at the product and see whether it's made of soy protein or whether it's made of uh, a wheat protein. And if it's wheat protein, I don't buy it because of the allergy. So, um, and another thing is, we our favorite place to eat out now is Veggie Grill in Mountain View, and they have great food, especially fish tacos. Their their fake fish is, is really delicious, and I wish I could find it on the market. Um, so well, thank we're, you, we're thank very you, Dan. Happy with a mixed or hybrid diet. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I just want to hear that that. That point you touched on there, Dana, from from Larissa, you know, what about regulation? So we've got all of these products, like she says, wheat, you know, 
products or fish, rice products, you've got to be reading the labels a lot more these days. What kind of regulation is happening as these products begin to be laden with more fillers, emulsifiers, etc.? What is the Food and Drug Administration promising? Are, 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 is this stuff safe, is my question. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, our food system is safer than it's ever been. We, you know, we only have to look back at the 1900s to see that it wasn't safe. And now it's, you know, really like, you know, we, we see outbreaks here and there, but not often. However, the FDA is reactive, not proactive. So companies can get approval for ingredients just by sh- sending in research of their own. And they get something called grass, generally recognized as safe. Now, there's an ingredient in the Impossible Burger that's grass. It's uh, an, a form of plant-based iron called heme, H-E-M-E. And there aren't studies that have like long, there aren't long-term studies that tell me that this is safe to eat or that tell me uh, I should, I should be like, Oh, fine. Happy. I'm happy to have this in my diet. And so ingredients, the nutrition facts label, which is the most reproduced graphic in the world is only looked at by a small set of people. I mean, we do look at it, but how, how much how closely do we look at it? I do, right? And maybe because of the pandemic, like the, the the pickup and QR codes, we'll be able to scan things quicker to find out what's in it and learn more. But I think it's um, I'm the I'm the infrequent person that looks up, you know, what tree hollows is and to find out what it is. And when you go to fast food like Veggie Grill, you know, how do you find out what's in everything? Uh, I find that actually is can be really hard at conferences that serve vegan foods. They don't say what's in it. Uh, even, even if it's vegan, I like, right. You want to avoid wheat or you want to avoid pea or you want to avoid soy. Uh, it, it's going to get very complicated as you noted. I would love to hear from, from listeners. I want to know, have you eaten the impossible burger? What do you think? Have you tried plant-based options, kind of these fungi bacon or, or steaks? Uh, how do you feel about getting your food from labs in Silicon Valley? Give us a call now at one 6786 You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Jackie writes, the cost for heat, lighting, power for mixing tanks, water are still going to be really present with laboratory-grown foods. Aren't we better off finding sustainable agricultural practices to raise the correct foods in the correct places? Won't there still be problems with cheap labor to manage? It seems like the problems that face us kind of hit us on all on all levels. I would love to hear, Larissa, you said you talked to all these experts at the end of your book about what we'll be eating in 20 years. They had kind of some really dismal predictions, some very optimistic predictions. What is your prediction? Where do you think we're headed? I think we're headed to a land of hybrid. And I have yet to see, you know, this, this, this regenerative farming kind of angle is something that I think is very important to not lose sight of, but I don't see that being a conversation yet. And I hope I'm hopeful, right? That's what I I'm hopeful for. Uh, But I think hybrid is what's going to happen during the, during 2020, plant-based meat sales skyrocketed and people that meant that people were trying things. I wrote a story for Bloomberg about how tofu, you couldn't find tofu on the shelves and <laughs> right. And wow. so, so plant-based meat sales were incredible. However, it still has less than 1% of the global meat market. And so we're eating it in, in record numbers, but it's not making a dent. And so I think as we 
as climate becomes more important because of President Biden, as as it becomes talked about more frequently with, um, you know, books and and scientists focused on the climate, I think that it will evolve into this very hybrid nature. So uh, there's there's over 1,200 plant-based brands sold in our markets. It's going to continue. Big food is you know watching the, the, these categories and getting in on it, right? They all, almost all of them have some kind of version of of plant-based meat that they're selling now that are not as good as impossible or beyond, but they're close. And, you know, so I think we're going to have these like hybrid uh, markets with uh, different foods that you have to just watch over even closer. And uh, yeah, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that this technology innovation can be, can be used on the traditional methods that we know and have now, but I haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm, but I'm optimistic that that will come. Seems like there's a lot of TBDs. Let's squeeze a call in here quickly from Robert. Robert, go My ahead. Whole thing, hello there. Um, yeah, because I look at it this way. Plant-based um, food um, like Beyond Burger, which is good, and Pulse Burger I think is better. But we have to look at the bigger picture. We're trying to reduce the greenhouse gases that are produced by the methane, by the cows, um, that are out there, the ty- how they raised all the chemicals that they use to to raise the cows, all the chemicals that are used that are used and off gassed and put into the water from the cows, and also the amount of le- um, food that we have to grow to feed the cows. We have we grow more food to feed cows than we do for humans. So, if we can reduce that in any way, is a good thing. So we shouldn't downplay the the Beyond Burgers and these other types of food that we're trying to create. We should actually try to embrace that instead. Thank you very much. We're talking about the future of food with author and journalist Larissa Zimbaroff and her new book, Technically Food. We'll be right back. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. We're joined now by Adam Lowry. He's the co-founder of Ripple Foods, which is a brand of pea protein dairy alternative products based in Berkeley. I have tried them. I have to admit it. They're pretty tasty. Um, Welcome, Adam. Uh, Thanks for having me, Leslie. I'm curious, why peas? Why did you head in that direction? Uh, Really just for health and nutrition reasons. So we realized that most dairy alternatives, most plant-based milks actually lacked the nutrition of milk. Um, Most people don't know it, but, you know, an oat milk has almost no protein in it. Uh, An almond milk has one eighth of the protein of dairy milk. And, you know, peas are a great protein source. They're a more uh, sustainable crop. And so we wanted to find a way to make a dairy, like a dairy alternative milk 
that had the same or actually better nutrition than dairy milk. And so that's why we started with these. And do you strip it apart? Do you do what Larissa was talking about in terms of breaking it down to its proteins, et cetera, and, and kind of dividing it out? Or is the whole pea in the milk? Yeah, it's it, it's important to sort of state since the most of this conversation has been about things like cultured meats um, and fermentation processes. We actually use a much more simple method. So um, our product, we don't make products in a lab. Um, they start in fields um, with peas and sunflower. Um, and we do uh, we do take parts of those peas um, and uh, other parts of the peas don't end up in the product. So starch, for example, um, starch is a carbohydrate. It's about 80% of a pea. Um, we remove a lot of the starch uh, before we, uh, almost all of the starch, before we um, use the rest of that pea protein and some of the fiber to uh, combine with sunflower and make milk. Let's go to Evan in Las Gatos. Evan, go ahead. Yes, hi. Thank you. Uh, my question is this. How does the production of engineered foods compared to that required for traditional agriculture, especially as we go to scale. Adam, I'd like to, you to answer that in terms of, you know, how does making pea milk compare to milking cows in terms of energy? Uh, in terms of energy, the greenhouse gas emissions are about three quarters lower with a Ripple product than uh, with dairy milk and a bunch of information on our website at Ripple Foods that, that actually shows you exactly how those numbers get added up. Um, but it's important to recognize that, you know, dairy milk, for example, is one of the most highly processed foods on the planet. Um, if you've ever been to a dairy farm, you, you, you sort of understand that you sort of viscerally and immediately. Um, and so the question is, how do we make um, more sustainable, more nutritious foods um, with as sort of minimal intervention as we can so that they're really healthy, um, both for us and for the planet? And that's that that's what I think we need to focus on. And are people beyond Berkeley drinking pea milk? I mean, how far out? How's your market? What's happening out there in terms of? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're in the U.S. and Canada. We're not international. Um, but yeah, we've got uh, literally millions of people that are enjoying Ripple products uh, throughout the U.S. and Canada. And, and do you hope to, I mean, is the goal eventually to be in developing countries or is your market kind of the, the high end eater, whole food type? No, I mean, we're, we're distributed at Target stores nationwide, regular grocery stores nationwide. I mean, it is very much my business philosophy, both with Ripple Foods and other businesses that I've, you know, that I've started and built um, to bring healthier, more sustainable options to mass markets. I think that's actually how we um, create a groundswell of, you know, positive consumer behavior that moves us in a direction toward a much more sustainable world. I started my career as a climate scientist um, doing, you know, climate models and realized that we need to get people uh, involved if we're going to create the positive changes we need. So you were on the board um, of Aero Farms for about seven years, up until about a year and a half ago. Give me a little sense of your experience of vertical farming. What is it, first of all, and what do you hope to do there? Uh, sure. Aerofarms is a really fantastic company. Um, and like I said, I was with them for a while, uh, for, for several years. What, what they do is they grow vegetables indoors. Um, and yes, uh, they, they do use artificial lighting uh, right now, but as they're scaling up, they're using um, renewable energy to do that. Um, the, what's really key about it is it uses about 95% less water um, and uh, nearly 100% less land uh, to grow uh, vegetables. 
things like leafy greens. And, you know, the benefit of that is, is actually beyond just the sustainability aspect. Um, a lot of leafy greens are picked way before they're ripe. And they lose a lot of their nutritional value um, as they, you know, sit on a truck and the average item on a food plate uh, travels 1,500 miles. Uh, you lose a lot of nutrition in that process. And actually, Aero Farms has been able to actually prove that their uh, leafy greens are much more nutrient dense, um, particularly with you know the micronutrients that are uh, there in leafy greens, than what's grown in a field. Um, and doing so with far less land, uh, far less uh, water. Um, it also creates uh, an aspect of where the, the vegetables are grown very close to their markets, uh, Aero Farms being based in Newark, New Jersey. Um, most of the leafy greens that are purchased in Newark, New Jersey for most of the year come from California. Um, so, you know, innovations like that can really address some of the sort of structural problems we have in our food system. Wow. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for enlightening us on vertical farming and, and Ripple Foods. Those are pea proteins. Uh, Adam is the co-founder of Ripple Foods, which is a brand of pea protein dairy alternative products based in Berkeley. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you. Ma thank you very much. And just wanted to say hello hi to Larissa again. Um, good hey, good Adam. to be on with you, Larissa. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Let's go to a caller, Jennifer from Oakland. Jennifer, go ahead. Hi. Um, after hearing your last uh, guest, comments. I feel kind of bad about saying this, but honestly, I, I really appreciate the, the scientific and academic approaches to um, how we're going to feed the world in the future. But honestly, it really grosses me out, the idea of growing meat in a, um, a vat and um, structuring it um, for people to eat. Just the thought of it is like, wow, I'm just wondering, you know, what is What's what is this saying about um, not having enough food to feed the world going forward? And I think about you know things like soil and green and everything like that. But I just wanted to make that comment that while I appreciate um, the thought into feeding the world going forward, I'm really um, just kind of repulsed actually by the thought of <laughs> eating some of these foods that you're describing. Thank Gen you so much. I'll just uh, Jennifer, just stay with me. I, I want to ask you a question. Oh. But does it does it would it gross you out? Do you think if you stood on the lines of a slaughterhouse and watched animals get butchered? I mean, do you think we're just kind of removed from the process so much that we don't actually we're not grossed out because we don't see it? I would agree with that. I think that um, just as a human being, it's easier for me to see something like um, a slaughterhouse because it's it's for food, not just to kill an animal just for cruelty um, versus seeing that you were referring to before is that pink slime or a slurry actually being nutritious. I, I just am not there yet, um, but I absolutely agree with you. It's not easy seeing animals being slaughtered. It's not easy seeing CAFOs, you know, with cows um, and sheep with, you know, in poop up to their, their, their armpits. That's not easy to see either. Um, but um, I, I, I think a lot of your callers, yeah, your callers have brought up some some concerns that where's the middle way, you know, here. I'm just I'm just not ready for pink slime again. <laughs> but thank you very much for the conversation. Well, Larissa, l let me ask you that. What, I mean, how do we market? How are companies planning to get over the pink, pink slime hurdle? I think that your your caller has good points, valid points that I, I see as well. And I think, I think gener generationally, we're going to have much easier acceptance. So I think they're going to go for the younger demographics um, as their first, their first goal. I think that uh, easy, easy to accept ideas like the chicken nugget. Uh, I think high-end restaurants, you know, Impossible Foods kind of famously launched only with high-end chefs first as their first um, 
market. And that, that, that way they ensured that chefs could cook it right and make it delicious. And there was also this sort of foodie kind of clamoring, right, to try it, to be the first to try it. So I think their market is initially going to be that like that food, you know, food lover. Who Adventurer. Wants- the food adventurer, exactly, who wants their passport stamped with that the, the, the they've had everything kind of wacky. And um, and then also the younger demographics, I think they're going to be much, easy, much easier to convince. You know, I still can see cows being milked as 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 what milk is, but eventually it will be just, you know, kids that grow up on a Tetra pack of almond milk and won't won't understand that cows were milked. Right. Well, let's go to uh, Frank in Davis. Go ahead. Yes, good morning. I'm a biologist. I've been farming for many, many years. I've lived around the world. I've seen lots of stuff. Um, This artificial stuff is fine, but I think we're forgetting that uh, we need to look at insects and insect protein as the way to go. We're running out of fisheries. We're running out of pasturage uh, pasturage, uh, area, cutting down rainforest for cattle. Um, I have a cow myself uh, for Uh, fire control around my farm. Um, But I think that we really, really need to look at insect protein as something that is there. Uh, We're uh, growing it for the pet trade. Um, It's very profitable. Uh, It doesn't produce uh, methane, etc. Can we scale uh, it, though, Larissa? Can you scale insects? I'm sorry? Uh, people are trying to scale insects, and I think insects have a lot of potential for, to feed to feed fish in aqua farms, and insects have a potential to become, you know, feed for animals. And I think that that is a great function for insects. I I actively decided not to include insects as a chapter in my book because I I haven't seen it gain traction in the you know, five to seven years that I've been watching, there are companies getting really big amounts of investment. And so this could change, but I know that they're focused on this sort of animal feed adoption as their first uh, hurdle to pass. So um, I just don't see people bringing it in as anything more than a, a, a flower or something that where the bug is completely invisible. We're talking about the future of food with author and journalist Larissa Zimbaroff about our new book, Technically Food. I want to hear from you. Have you included any of these options that she's mentioned? Fungi burgers, algae, pea protein milk. What are you eating that's unusual or why wouldn't you eat some of these cultured foods? Give us a call at 1-866-733-6786. That's 1-866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Jennifer writes, lab-grown food produced by big tech brings up for me the questions of losing not only practical knowledge of food production within the greater community, but also through increased legislation banning backyard chicken coops and front yard gardens and also the loss of diversity of naturally grown foods. Many people share seeds and breeds. Lab products do away with all of that neighborly practice and put our food security in the hands of corporations. Do you think there really is a kind of push to shove there that they can't both be together, Larissa? Do, can backyard gardens not live with food tech or, or, or can they happen simultaneously? 
Well, I'm definitely in the camp that wants those things to exist simultaneously. And we saw everyone getting really excited about victory gardens and sourdough and chickens with with the pandemic, you know, kind of focused on home cooking and scratch cooking. I think that that's not going away. You know, I'm hopeful that these things can exist together. It, it, it will be something very interesting to watch. It's still such an early sector, this culture, the cultured sector. And I think that I don't I don't see I mean, I mean, that's a very sci-fi kind of version of the world where, you know, kind of the backyard garden and the backyard chickens are illegal, right? That's, that's, that's if something really terrible happens, like, you know, our water supply we don't have water, right? There are things that could happen that could really propel this, this category of new foods f- f- forward. Um, and, you know, it's not like something we want to necessarily focus on, but it could happen, especially in California with, you know, kind of the drought this summer that's, that's kind of like looming. Well, Kara writes, I enjoy eating plant-based burgers, although my one complaint is the high sodium content of many of the plant-based burgers. I think Impossible Foods has been kind of nailed for this about that the health in you know implications of of adding so many ingredients to try to make things taste like meat. So again, kind of talk about the health and nutritional faux pas that we might be running into. Yeah, I like I think an impossible or beyond burger is something to have infrequently, just like a regular burger. It's not something I'm going to have in my diet every day. And it's it's um you know, it's 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 hyper engineered. It's made to be delicious. It's made to to be craved. And that's something to, I, it, as someone with type one diabetes, I, I watch out for those things, right? My, my palate is different. I, if something's too sweet, I, you know, have alerts going off in my mind. And so these like 20, 18 to 20 ingredient products where every ingredient comes from a potentially different country and it has like a, you know, a story that we don't know or understand. That's something to, to watch over. So I think like, again, to this clean label or to knowing more about what you're eating, I think we're all going to have to become more educated, better educated about what we're eating and, um, you know, have the foods that aren't so good for you, but don't have them often, you know, have as much variety in your diet as possible. But potentially better regulation as well. You know, we just saw this week Belcampo meats get called out for um, basically sourcing meat that actually wasn't what they were promising because they couldn't meet the demands, the needs that of the of the market of their sort of very organically sustainable harvested meat. So instead, they were using you know mass grown you know meats, and they were called out for it. But there were the an employee came forward with the story. So it wasn't regulators that caught this. So how do we ensure that these companies are living up to their promises? Yeah. And this goes, this takes us back to the, the, the question of the FDA, which is uh, reactive, not proactive. People have to write in, people have to complain about problems, uh, um, like digest, digestion problems. Uh, you know, we have the eight famous kind of eight ingredients that are, uh, that are highly allergenic and we actually sesame just got added. So now there are nine, but um, that list takes time decades to be built. And, uh, but the USDA is on site every day. They're, they're, they're looking at meat every day. So with cultured, with cultured meat, it will be in, in the U S it will be the USDA and the FDA. But again, the USDA is used to like a daily review of foods, right? They're going to, they're going to approve the product as it's being placed in a package and sent out. But the FDA is going to review the, the manufacturing facility. They're going to review the, the, the safety steps. And so, 
this I, this has concern for me because I don't know that we we know enough about everything to really have a handle on it. And the FDA, you know, are they strapped for for resources? Do they have everything they need to really to really grapple with what's coming and uh, to manage these these kind of sightly visits? Well, Ian writes, I read a lot of food packaging labels and in many ingredient lists, there's this non-specific item called natural flavors. Is that an FDA category with some specific requirements to food product manufacturers not list what natural flavors are because they consider it to be their secret sauce and their competitive advantage? Do, do you know anything about how natural flavors make it onto our packages, Larissa? Yeah, in my book, I call it the black box, right? There's this like, there's, there's always a piece of the nutrition facts label that you don't know, and you won't know, because if it's under a certain amount, uh, I actually don't, I'm not, I can't say I know the percentage, but it's probably in the like low 2%. If it's under that, they don't have to share what exactly it is. And Mm. so, yes, you could call it the secret sauce and you could call it the black box. I actually wouldn't be concerned about that area. It's just not enough. I think that it's going to make a big, big difference to like your health. I would be very focused on the first five ingredients and, you know, those are the things that are used at their at, at their biggest amounts. And that I think that black box is, is not quite something to be like, you know, kind of um, anxi- have anxiety about. Got it. We've been talking about high-tech food with investigative reporter and author of Technically Food inside Silicon Valley's mission to change what we eat. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Seema Yasmin. Thank you so much, Larissa, for your time. Thank you, Leslie. This was great. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.